Second weekly podcast. Did I shout? No, you just sounded very suave. Well, did I? Mm, I've this got a bit of a cold. Podcast. I thought this I might sound an MS podcast. <laughs> it's like my BBC voice. <laughs> How are you today, Tilda? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I do. I like, yeah, I thought I might sound a bit nasally, but apparently not. I've got a bit of a winter cold, like everybody seems to at the minute. Literally very everyone. Like me. And it just won't mm. go away. No, it's not the one. We need a Lemsip sponsorship up in here or something. Oh, mate, I basically pay their bills anyway. I love that stuff. <laughs> I've got the Boots own brand. This is a very niche <laughs> reference that probably most people won't get. Um, anyway, our guest this week is Michelle Duffy. Um, Michelle is the director of events, brand and content strategy. Content strategy. Did I? Oh, my God, I say that. Um, for Lifetime. Uh, the company that organized the Lifetime Grand Prix series, so the gravel series in the US, which incorporates most of the biggest gravel events over there. So you've probably heard of Unbound and Leadville. Um, so some pretty huge events that she's kind of in charge of, really. Um, so we talked to her about her background in the industry, her experience as a woman in the field, um, and also how things have changed over the last few years since she's been working at Lifetime. Um and her ambitions for the series going forward, um, because this year was actually the first time um, that they ran the Lifetime Grand Prix. Obviously, a lot of the events individually have been running for a long time, but as a series, this was the first one. So, yeah, really interesting to talk to Michelle. Um, I really enjoyed it. I don't know about you, Tilda. I did, yeah. And I think um, we've had a lot of conversations about gravel and like the equality in gravel, and we don't know that much about it. So for us, it's always like a learning curve when we speak to people like Michelle or when we speak to Betsy. But I really love hearing the different perspectives and the way that things differ from um, our background in road. So yeah, it was a really interesting conversation. And I think pretty eye-opening about things like um, inclusion and equality in gravel from kind of the other side of the curtain. Yeah, it definitely was. So that's our guest for this week. Before we get onto that, however, let's take a quick look at this week in women's cycling. As usual, given that we're on the 8th of December as we record this, there's not a whole lot going on. Um, but there's also some quite big stories that have come out this week, not least um, the official announcement, unfortunately, of the fact that the women's and men's B&B hotels teams won't be going ahead so that means that riders like Audrey Cordon Rigaud, Chloe Hosking um, and actually Anna Kiesenhofer was one that I'd forgotten about that I saw the other day um, without contracts um, at the minute for next year so pretty rubbish news um, but also kind of expected after the way things have been going the last few weeks it wasn't looking particularly promising but um, hopefully they can find teams. Um, there is one spot uh, now available on Trek because Leia Thomas, um, the American rider, has decided to sit another year out of the peloton after having an operation on her back, I believe it was, last year. So she won't be riding for Trek next season. Um, Rumour has it that's actually been filled because there's also, of course, two teams now um, that had full rosters for 2023 and now 
have folded or are in danger of folding. So Lakal Wahu, of course, is the other team. Um, few of the riders from that one have uh, found new contracts, thankfully. So Becky Story um, will head to DSM. And Mylon, I can't, we're going to call him Maya. Maya. Uh, and also um, Jesse Vandenbalker are going to Human Powered Health. So actually three riders who've gone from Continental to World Tour level there. So there are definitely silver linings. Silver linings. Yeah, absolutely. Um, elsewhere, the speaking of gravel, um, next year's World Series will have its first UK-based race, um, one that will take place in Scotland in May next year and finally Marta Cavalli has said that she is 100% recovered after her awful Tour de France fam crash so that's good to hear can't wait to see her back in action next season uh, and that's the week so let's hear from Michelle welcome to the podcast Michelle Duffy how are you today I am great how are you guys good thanks excited to have you on so Actually, Michelle, if you could just tell us exactly your your title within the Lifetime Grand Prix. Yeah, I am the marketing director for Lifetime, which is a company based out of uh, Minnesota in the United States. And um, we own and facilitate uh, clubs, gyms, um, but we also own 30 athletic events around the U.S., um, many of which are cycling events. And most recently, we launched the Lifetime Grand Prix. Yeah, let's start by, I guess, could you tell us how you got into to the industry? I had an atypical entry into uh, the cycling industry um, and as well as marketing. So originally I was a track and field athlete um, in university and I wanted to go on to become a college coach. And I did that, um, but it wasn't very sustainable um, like over here to be a successful college coach you really need to get into a big university. So I just continued to supplement coaching with other roles. And um, many of that were field marketing roles. So working for brands like Muscle Milk, um, handing out protein shakes at athletic events, including cycling and triathlons. Um, Slowly that led to a coaching role with a, a larger organization called New York Roadrunners, which puts on the New York City Marathon. And I was coaching athletes there and then on a whim just sent this note like, hey, here are some things I think we could have done better. And a couple months later, my phone rang and it was the VP of marketing from the company. And somehow this email had went landed in her inbox throughout a few months. And she's like, let's bring you in. You don't really have that much marketing background, but I kind of see something here. And um, within a few weeks, I had a full time job with the organization and was helping lead the marketing for the biggest marathon in the world. So that was pretty cool. Um, and that was kind of like my big entry point into marketing. I hadn't realized that I'd actually been working in the industry for so long with other field marketing roles, but this was like full time big girl job in New York City. Um, and then just over five years ago, I made the move out to Colorado. Um, and now I'm in Emporia, Kansas, but same role. I took a job with Lifetime where I am now, and it was to lead the marketing for the Leadville Race Series. Um, so if you're not familiar uh, with the Leadville Race Series as a whole, The most famed events are the Leadville Trail 100, 100 100-mile run and mountain bike race through the highest city in America. Um, 
And that was part of my portfolio. So quickly I was like, oh my gosh, I need to learn about the bike, the running side. Like I have that. Um, and, and then since then my role has just expanded and we've acquired and launched a series of new gravel events and mountain biking events around the country. And, um, I have left my running shoes behind. I'm all in on, on cycling now. And is it safe to say that your, your role has kind of grown organically almost alongside how the company's portfolio has grown? Absolutely. I've been really fortunate that it's like I, I jumped in with Lifetime at the right time. Um, originally, yeah, it was just the Leadville events and we quickly acquired Unbound Gravel, um, which used to be called DK, um, probably eight months after I started and that came onto my portfolio. And um, because I then had some of the cycling events, every time we launched or acquired a new event that came onto my plate as well. And I got to grow my team. It used to be just me. And now, you know, I have a whole team and um, I also do work on our, our run and triathlon events now as well. Um, but I've spent majority of my time with lifetime working on cycle. And and coming through the ranks and, and in all these roles, did you ever feel, because obviously on the whole kind of these industries are when it comes to sport, at least male dominated, did you ever find that you faced any challenges because of being a woman or was it kind of just based on your experience? Um, I think definitely. Yes. And not just being a woman, but being a young woman. Um, when I first came into, to my role here, you know, I was in my mid twenties and, um, in a, you know, with not as many years of experience as, as counterparts, um, and, and especially not in, in the cycling industry. So, you know, not being a cyclist originally when coming into the space, plus being 26, 27, plus being in this more senior role, um, and then being a female, there were, um, you know, I've, I've like thought a lot recently, like, do I suffer from imposter syndrome? And I feel like that answer is totally well, maybe not as much today, but it was for a long time. And, um, you know, that whole like fake it till you make it. I don't know how I, how I totally feel about that when it comes to imposter syndrome, but I do feel like it was, you know, trying to learn at rapid speeds and constantly trying to assert myself while also being comfortable, letting other people, um, take credit, uh, so to speak for a lot of the work that, that you're doing or not feeling confident enough to like, stand on two feet and be like, yeah, I own that. Like someone came to me with an idea and I, I was able to build that instead. It, it was always very deflecting, like, oh, someone else's idea or, um, you know, it, it, it takes a village and it truly does take a village, but it's only recently that I'm like, actually, like, this is pretty cool. Let me step back and like, look at everything that lifetime has been able to accomplish since I've been here and, um, being, feeling proud with that. It took some time. Yeah, I think that's one thing we've spoken about a few times now on this podcast is is women not just being in the like endurance sports industry at any level, but actually being in positions of authority and being able to take up the space and responsibility that they deserve. And I guess for you, kind of being there from almost the start of the journey for things like the Grand Prix, I guess, does that kind of help with the imposter syndrome? You didn't just step into it and go, OK, now I've got to be this really senior figure. It was more of a process. Yeah, I think the fact that it was gradual to get here was was helpful. But at the same time, um, back in 2017, when I first stepped in and was 
taken a charge on something like the Leadville Trail 100 mountain bike race, an event that like has been around since the early 90s and really helped shape mountain biking here in the U.S. and, and around the world. But um, there's a huge responsibility there as well. And so you're stepping into it like, oh, my God, how do I not F this up? <laughs> and um, and and also, how do I gain the respect of my peers? And fortunately, I I can, even though like maybe I like went back to my room and cried a few times <laughs> during that time, like presented myself like very confident and tried to do my research and speak eloquently and shoulder criticisms because all of that did happen. Um, you know, people that have been in the space for a longer time or, or, or questioning who this girl from New York with no cycling experience is, um, those instances definitely have happened, um, throughout my career. And I think not as much, I mean, I don't actually recall too much in the last, like at least six months to 12 months. Um, but early on there were times where it was like, I'm just going to stand my ground here and, and present myself. And I think presentation matters so much. I have a lot of young, young, um, team members who were working through that, like feeling confident, speaking up, um, because if you can find your voice and and speak up at the times where you're feeling most confident, then it does help people um, to look at you with a different respect. And then you can go back and cry <laughs> um, and and uh, work through all of that behind the scenes. I mean, you say you haven't noticed it so much in like the last six months. Is that, do you think, to do with your level of experience now? Or is that because you think things are changing within the industry? I think all of it. I mean, I look around at just our team internally and it's like, mostly women right now I look around when we're at you know expos and and events and there's a lot more women showing up um we were recently talking about this the other day is like from the inside out in the industry we are starting to see much more um female presence and I think there have been you know a few key drivers to that um but also then having these different events throughout the world popping up like the tour um bringing back a women's race or the grand prix where you're putting 30 women um like providing them the same exposure as as the men's field and um we're not there yet but i do think having brand industry event promoter media all kind of like beginning to have a collective train of thought like we are not even second guessing if this person does or doesn't belong, whether they're, they're female or not, like if we continue to think that way and foster that way of thinking, then we're just going to see more comfortability for women in the space. Yeah. It's almost like all the different puzzle pieces coming together. And I think, yeah, if, I mean, our experience is mainly in road, but it's like things have been changing a lot in the sport itself of cycling, but it's only really in the last couple of years that the number of women doing our job doing journalism has changed. It's just like, putting all the pieces together so does it definitely feel like that is coming together especially in the kind of gravel world yeah for sure um as I mentioned like we are starting to see that 
through everything. Uh, I love standing at the finish. Well, I don't love standing at the finish lines because usually I'm like, media, get back. I'm like strong holding everyone. But um, there's been way more uh, female photographers and videographers and, and journalists in that space now and focus specifically on the women's race as well. Um, a couple of years ago, and I, this like pains me to say it, but I would stand at some of our finish lines and the men's winner would come through and it would be jam packed. And, you know, to the point where I was needing to like get people out of the shoe to create a safe environment and holding them back. And the, the women's winner would come and you're like, uh, hello, <laughs> does any media want to come to the finish line? Like telling the announcers, like announce that the women's winner is coming. And like, maybe you would have a couple people triple trickle in, um, the space has evolved so much because now also I think women are being better supported by brands and brands are sending uh, photographers and videographers to come specifically cover those athletes. So that's made it made a difference. But even just watching now, like I think Big Sugar Gravel happened in October is the perfect example. The women's race was so dynamic. The Grand Prix was so dynamic that by the time that the women were coming in, firstly, they were like uh, Paige on Weller won, but there were seven women fighting for positions two through eight and the media shoot was just as packed. And that was such a rewarding feeling like, wow, okay. Something, whether that's the Grand Prix or like the industry in in general or perception, whatever it is, is changing because this is not what it looked like four years ago. Um, And, and that we actually did have a moment where we're like, Oh my gosh, this is so cool. Just like looking around all of that um, like first 10 finishers of the women's field were talking to media and engaging with one another and talking to their brands. And it was a really, really cool experience. And so kind of looking into the future then, what what are the big the big goals or what plans are there to kind of continue to to grow the women's side? Yeah. So um looking at the the events like beyond just the the pro field as well, I Sometimes when we first started to put the pros at the forefront at our events and talking about them more in social and um, focusing on them from like a media pitching perspective, we did see some rhetoric from the everyday cyclists. Like they didn't really care about that because they're, these events are, you know, thousands of mass participants and, um, Part of that, I think, became our responsibility to help educate all of the cyclists that are participating on who these professional athletes are. And I've always looked at an event like no, no spoke is a higher priority, right? Like you need all the spokes in your wheel. And if the event is like the center, it's like the pros attract the media, the media provides the coverage, the coverage gets exposure, the exposure gets in front of the mass participants, which piques their interest and results in them registering. So the more that we continue to um, put elites at the forefront and tell their story, I think that second part is like so important. And that's something that we're really focused on is like, maybe people didn't necessarily resonate with the professional athletes or elite athletes because they didn't see themselves in the athlete. And so part of what we are trying to accomplish with the Grand Prix is like, yes, there's 35 men and 35 women that are competing for this giant prize purse across events that you're participating in. 
yes, you are, you are not eligible for that prize purse. They are like, they have a separate start at some of these events. Like all of that does separate them from the everyday rider. However, they're still going through the same experience as the mass participant. And they um, also are a mother of two, or they also have been dealing with a mental health disorder, or they, you know, were a soccer player growing up. I mean, it doesn't have to be uh, something super intense, like going through uh, an illness, but just seeing yourself and like, oh, okay. Like I, I was a runner. I played soccer. I got hurt too when I was running and so did this elite cyclist and look what they're able to do. Telling those stories for the women and, and the pro field in general, but specifically for the women, I think helps women. Like if you see it, you can be it. There's that, that uh, old saying just rings so true. And we keep seeing that over and over again. So part of, part of the responsibility that I feel um, in my role is to ensure that we are providing the exposure for those elites both for them to be able to build a portfolio of sponsors that makes being an elite cyclist a a livable career for them, but then also so we can inspire more everyday cyclists to want to participate. And I guess on that, I don't know if you would have the kind of um, numbers like to hand, but how do you see the balance changing in in the mass participation? mass participation events obviously you're committed to the equal um number of selected elites but what is the kind of balance in the um mass start events yeah I mean we continue to like we would love to see 50 50 parity we're not seeing that um but we are seeing an increase in female participation and especially like with a portfolio as big as ours And some events that have multiple distances, like at Unbound Gravel here in Emporia, Kansas, the 200 definitely is is predominantly male, but our 25 and 50 are more women than men. And that's okay. Like, I think, you know, early on in in the stages of when we had the 200 women, 200 miles campaign, for example, we saw a lot of women just like wanted to come in and take on the 100. And I I think that that is okay, like by event. Mm -hmm we are probably going to see different ratios. I don't mean that's okay. We're going to sit on our heels and accept it. We're still advocating and trying to create a safe space for women to come, um, but also creating the opportunities and providing the distances that are attracting women who maybe are raising three kids and running around to sports and they just simply don't have the time or they feel that they don't have the time um, to commit to training for 200 miles, like if they want to come to the Flint Hills and race 50 miles, hundred miles, 25 miles, like all of that's an accomplishment. And so part of it's educating the different opportunities that exist. Like it doesn't have to be a full-time commitment. You can also be, you can also race your bike and race your bike for 30 miles. And that too is an accomplishment. And I think providing those different opportunities and options um, really have helped our numbers. There's an event in in Leadville. It's a really hard 50 mile event. Has historically been very male heavy. We added a 15 mile mountain bike distance to it, and it's you know 80 percent women are participating in an event like that. Um, so we're seeing more and more women coming to the space, and we're also seeing more and more women step into uh, the different distances as we're creating opportunities. It's interesting when you talk about the distances. Because I think it speaks to like two things. I think 
because we and we often coming from like a road racing kind of background like we do um we talk about distances locks like the distances are not equal between the men's and women's races but actually a lot of the pros and a lot of people say that actually true quality doesn't mean that they have to race the exact same distance because it's like quality not quantity Mm -hmm. um but then the other thing that I was just thinking is that it almost speaks to this thing about confidence again is like I think for women it's a really daunting prospect I think not to stereotype but a a bloke might be like oh yeah of course I can do that whereas a woman might be like oh I don't know um it's not necessarily a question I don't know I just that's that's just so helpful I and I agree with you because I'm like hesitant when I say something like oh we have other distance options for women if they don't want to take on 200 miles because I fully believe that I mean, women actually get better as the distance gets longer, data and science has shown. Um, so it's like I over the last few, I guess over the last year, as I've been trying to step back and look at it because we are not getting a 50-50 parity and we're pushing hard and um, trying to dif- build safe spaces and provide the platforms you know, uh, to the point that, that you just made, like women need to to ease into it. Not all, but some, some women need to do the 50 mile and then come back and be like, Oh, I could do the hundred. Oh, I could do the 200. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about what it's like to run the series and how the inaugural edition, um, has gone? Um, so we, we launched the grand prix a year ago, um, in 2021 for 2022. And, um, the, the process itself, you know, launching a brand new series, there is some risks to it because we were like, okay, what kind of field are we going to see come through this, this first year's application? Um, and, and we're comfortable with any option, but is it going to be more of the, the sub elite field um, that doesn't historically have a year planned out for them in their schedule? Or are we going to really see some heavy hitting names come in and um, it's been deja vu because our application is open for the Grand Prix right now. And watching some of the applications trickle in um, last year was just like, oh my gosh, I think we created something really cool because yes, they were like, it was just such a diverse set of applicants. But then we started seeing some of the biggest names in in mountain bike and gravel flow through. And by the end of it, it was really challenging. We originally planned to take 20 women and 20 men. And we took 30 um, because we realized we had space for it. And, and honestly, we were not expecting to have so much traction. And I think that continued throughout the year. I mean, this was the first year and we learned a lot. There was, there were some things that we were like, okay, ebbs and flows here. We made some adjustments throughout the year. Um, But overall, even just looking at like the media impressions, like numbers that we don't normally like, talk about in this format, but I think it's really important because it shows that people were paying attention. I mean, we had like, I don't even, I'm going to misquote it, but it was like in the billions of media impressions throughout the year for the Grand Prix specifically. And, and that if nothing else just says like people wanted to talk about it, they followed it. And I hope that it continues to grow bigger. Um, and hopefully becomes like one of the key staples and series around the world. I think, I think it's begun to assert itself there already in just a year. So it's, it's gave us some pause internally, like, wow, what could this be in three years, five years, 10 years down the road? Like in 10 years, is there an entire 
team that's just working on the Grand Prix because it's at that point. I don't know. Maybe um, right now we're all like doing our jobs we already had, plus taking on the the Grand Prix as well. And that's that's amazing, too. Um, but it, it just seeing the success from from year one um, and, and the, there were growing pains, but just taking a second and looking at like specifically the successes, specifically like the athletes that participated in it and seeing so many of them coming back and applying for a year or two, because they want another crack at it. Um, I think that shows that it provided value mm-hmm. and to the athlete. Um, we've heard from some athletes that have signed really big contracts after just one year of the Grand Prix. Um, and, and they are coming back for, for year two. And that's part of the, the reason that we launched it. And I think what it comes down to for us is, and you all are in the UK, but in the US, there's really been a lack in what we're using the word like cycling, the term cycling fandom, but a lack of cycling fandom over the last few decades. Um, one could say it's from like the Lance Armstrong era, not to, to call him out specifically, but it's it we've struggled here. And I think that happens with individual sports in general. If you look at like track and field or gymnastics or ice skating, they're like Olympic sports, right? People really follow them during during the Olympics, but not as much year round. And they typically will begin to follow that sport when there's like a big hero, uh, Serena Williams for tennis. Um, all of a sudden, tennis fandom has grown. So when thinking about that with cycling, it's like, beyond like the success of our events, because this isn't like, I mean, yes, we're probably getting more media attention for the events in the Grand Prix, but that's not the premise of why the Grand Prix was launched. It was specifically like, we have some of the biggest races in the United States in our portfolio. How cool is that? We're having some of the big, biggest names in cycling coming to compete, whether five years ago, we said we wanted to have pros or not, they're coming. So how cool is that? And then how do we then become better stewards for the sport? Um, both in growing participation, because now, you know, you resonate with an athlete, a Serena Williams-esque athlete or a Lewis Hamilton-esque athlete, and it inspires you to want to follow and get a bike and maybe do your first 30 mile event. And then it spirals, but also how can we support the professional athlete and our amazing like brand sponsors within the industry and provide more value. And um, I think that's something that we definitely were able to help foster this year is like, we're going to provide you a platform that you can then take to brands and um, get more sponsorships. And, and I think for, for many athletes that did happen, which is cool to see. And so looking forward to the second edition of the series, what were kind of some of the well, lessons learned this year and also things that we changing next year. I know one of the things is obviously more numbers, but also like paying the athletes entry fees and stuff like that. But there are more things that are changing to kind of continue fine tuning the series. Yeah. So um, one big, more like operational thing for us this year is we did roll out drug testing for the first time at any of our events this past year. Uh, but it was specific to just the Grand Prix athletes, and um, it was only at three events of the series. So next year we'll have testing at more events, and we'll test. We test. We tested three athletes at three events. So next year we'll test more athletes at more events, 
and expand testing beyond the Grand Prix pool. Um, not that, I mean, I really like to think that our space is, is a safe, clean space, but um, with prize money and big contracts on the line, uh, there's, if we're really shouldering the responsibility of helping to foster cycling in North America, then that means also protecting the sport, protecting the athlete. So we will be testing more than the Grand Prix athletes at our events. Uh, like a hypothetical is like you could have won unbound this year, uh, but not been a Grand Prix athlete. And then the Grand Prix athletes were tested, but not the person that got a huge incentive in his contract or her contract for having won the event. Um, so that's that's a big change that we're making. And um, it's a big operational change, but I think we'll continue to see a resurgence of of testing here in the U.S. as these other series are starting to to spring up, um, and and like in the UCI circuit, and uh, that's just commonplace. Um, but it's not happening in these unsanctioned events today. Um, we'll also be taking a, another look at our content strategy. So we like we're fine tuning that as the year went. And we actually are about to drop a six episode series in January. Um, that's kind of drive to survive esque documenting the, the Grand Prix. And we're really excited about it because we've been working on it, but we haven't had much to show because these things take time to build and it it'll be like a binge worthy you know, 25 to 30 minute per episode series. And then for next year, we're still talking about what we're going to do, but something that's more, that's, that's really important for us is really providing like pre and post shows, so to speak. So um, looking at like the national football league here, the NFL model, or just like a pregame show and a postgame show is something that we're going to be looking at doing. So providing more athletes with opportunities um, this year, something we learned is when trying to create such polished content, it's really hard to focus on all of the athletes. So we were not able to give the platform to all 60 athletes in the way that we had hoped and, and, beyond, you know, some social coverage or them coming to group rides, they really weren't getting the same exposure as those that became these like primary figures in this docu-series we've been working on. So we'll be creating new opportunities to get all 70 athletes out there in front of fans, in front of media, um, on our channels. That's, I think that's a big value to the athlete that um, can easily be solved for for next year. And then we also added a seventh event. So last year, the athletes were scored on their best five out of six events. This year, we'll score them on best five out of seven. Um, but athletes are committing to the series without knowing the seventh event. So we are calling it a wild card. And then it'll be announced in January. So they'll be committed to the series a week from in 10 days. Um, we'll announce the the 2023 Grand Prix athletes, and they won't know what this, their seventh event is, which is kind of cool. I hope. <laughs> um, and I wanted to ask about, because obviously from coming from a marketing background and from like a marketing perspective, obviously gravel has been such a success when it comes to promotion. And it's this, its own separate thing to like, you say the UCI sanctioned world of like road and other disciplines. What do you think has been the key to that? 
Yeah, it's a great question. For for one, I think from a mass participation perspective, um, it gravel's been growing before people knew gravel was growing. Um, and you know, there's a reason that some of these world tour pros came to do some of these gravel events, and it's because they'd actually been like quietly growing for a long time. I think that's an important part in the history of of gravel racing that's often um looked over for lack of a better term is the events became on people's radar when some bigger names came to them but those names came to the events because here in the U.S. they were already existing and like had all this underground buzz uh I think a lot of that that early on success came from accessibility in uh the rural U.S. just like over in Europe um there's so many dirt roads and paved roads and it's, it's safer and more accessible for people. And it's also just an adventure um, and a less intimidating invent- adventure than like sending it down the Rocky mountains on a mountain bike. Like that's not for everyone. And also there's only certain regions of the country that have mountain biking everywhere does have paved roads. Yes. But um, that's not the same adventure as you get when you're gravel riding And there's this like euphoric feeling when you're just like out in the middle of nowhere and like the only thing around you are cattle and some barbed fencing, barbed wire fencing, and like you're totally remote. And like that is, there's been like this spirit of gravel thing going on here. Um, But like I took, for me, that's like the spirit of gravel is like, you just are completely on your own adventure in a place that you would literally never be if you didn't ride gravel. Like you would never be 50 miles down dirt road only um, terrain in like, you know, your closest paved road would take you 15 miles to get to it. Like that's just not something that you get in other, in other sports, um, in other disciplines of cycling rather. And so I think that that adventure is what really helped to foster, to foster it. And then, and then we saw some big names that came and they wanted to experience that for themselves. And um, with that came more media attention. And then, you know, my example of the cycle earlier, just more media than more riders, more exposure. And then now you have an event like Unbound Gravel that Justin, you know, just 15 years ago had 30, 34 riders leave from a parking lot. And last year we had 4,000 and that was with a lottery system. So we were turning away thousands of riders. And so just watching that growth, that really just happened in 15 years. It's not a long time, um, but people want, want that experience. And one thing that, well, it was a conversation that was obviously sparked by the gravel um, world championships, the UCR gravel world championships earlier this year is the kind of, the UCR European gravel versus the lifetime American gravel. Could you see those two things coming together at all or, or, you know, lifetime slash the Grand Prix having a presence in Europe or is that is kind of your brand of gravel comfortable on its own and doesn't need the UCI overlords getting involved? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think our events can always stand on their own because they are today and they're successful standing on their own. Um, We've made the choice not to sanction anything and 
to you know operate without federation involvement um, because it gives us the freedom to build the brands and the personalities at our events that we wish and we have different rules at different events based on terrain and there's not just like one standard way that you have to that you can should are able to ride a bike at any of our events. Uh, if you want to ride a mountain bike at a gravel race or a gravel bike at a mountain bike race, you can do that. And I think having that freedom is also what like helped, but, you know, there was a lot of criticism around UCI gravel world and I'm not going to like take any shots there, but I think where some of that comes from the place that some of that comes from is like, this isn't quite what gravel is like gravel is like everyone's out there with a different bike or a different uh, setup or like, there's just, there's no regulation. It's just the like wild, wild West out there. And people are, folks are just trying to, to survive the event and they all take kind of different approaches. And there's sometimes criticism over how someone accomplishes it, but as long as it's within the rules and it goes and, that's really worked for us because everyone also does come from a different background. We see lots of gravel participants coming from former triathlon, former road racing, former mountain bike, and they all kind of have to like figure it out on their own, you know, being a former mountain biker and a former like crit racer, they're going to like approach gravel from two totally different perspectives. As long as we can create a safe environment for that, which I think like overwhelmingly we have, then it exists on its own. And, um, also something like as a marketer that I find that I'm like really passionate about is really digging into the community that each of these events take place in and then building the brand around that. So it doesn't feel the same. It's not a UCI or Ironman model. Again, not trying to take hits at them, what they've built works, but you have a very similar experience and expectation at every event that you go to. Um, it's a model that just like moves around the world. Whereas for us going to big sugar gravel, the Leadville trail, 100 sea otter and unbound are four completely unique experiences. What you can expect is a premium experience with an expo and high quality t-shirt and all those things that we pride ourselves in being a premier event organizer. Um, but the voice, the colors, the feel, the the atmosphere, the community are so different. And we really lean into that. Like Leadville would never be, the Leadville Trail 100 would never be what it is without the Leadville community there. And Unbound would never be what it is without the ag, um, agricultural Emporia community and, you know, small town living and Bentonville being like bike capital of the U.S. Like has its feel. And doing our like own thing allows us to, to accomplish that. Now, long-winded answer, but what I would say is like, back to our goal of creating cycling fandom, there's like no desire for us to sanction, but I do want to see success through uh, what the federations are accomplishing, particularly like just speaking as an American, like I'd love to see, and we've been talking about this internally, like the Olympics are going to be here in a few years. Like I would love to see an American that was, you know, wearing a U.S. jersey end up on the podium. And they did that because USA Cycling and UCI and the things that we're doing are all fostering a really positive cycling culture in the U.S. and around the world. And so more people start to migrate to the sport. We see less drop off at age 18. And um, and then I think we're all steering the same ship. So 
I don't necessarily think we need to sanction to accomplish that, but I would love to work in parallel and, and work towards the same goals. Sorry, that was long winded. No, it's, it's fine. It's good. It's all really interesting. Um, the only thing I think we've not asked about is, um, and it's quite, it's kind of like a, a big question that's, I don't, I think it's contentious, but it's one of the things that is up in the air. What's your opinion on, on having separate races for, for men and women? Yeah, that's a really big, um, topic right now. And my answer is kind of ambiguous because I think if there was a clear solution, someone would have figured that someone would have figured it out by now. I think, you know, the women elite riders would have been together and been advocating. And yes, there are, there is a contingent that wants a separate start. Um, but it's not the overwhelming majority right now. I do think this year, actually some women that did want a separate start saw value in the mass start and some women that wanted the mass start saw value in the separate start. And therein lies the ambiguity in that we're still just not sure the right model for that. And there's a big part of, of us that feels that um, maybe it is really a race by race scenario right now. Um, What I do believe is that we need to figure out how to cover, we, the industry needs to figure out how to cover the women's race at the same level um, of the men's race. If they are going off at one time, I think um, not to like favorite my team, but I think we do a good job of that because we ensure that we're staffing both the men's and the women's race from a social perspective. We have people assigned to both to each individual event. And so we don't have competing priorities. Like where am I supposed to go now? There's 17 miles between the men and women and you know, which race am I supposed to cover? We don't have to face that when you have designated team members that are focused on the women's race. So in terms of exposure, that can completely be accomplished in a mass participation event, as long as you prepare for it. Um, But I also think it's course by course dependent, like an event like Unbound, I understand coming off of the start line that it's very hectic, but at the end of the day, we'll make some adjustments to our events, but the Grand Prix and the elites are coming to those events because of the ethos that has existed. And that's, that's why that migration happened. And I think we need to be very careful uh, in using like already existing events with their already developed ethos and like stripping that away just for the elite field. Because now if you're sending off 70 riders before everybody else goes and they're racing by themselves. That's not what unbound gravel is. Unbound gravel is, you know, that you're rolling through the Flint Hills with hundreds, thousands of other riders. Like that's the ethos of that event. So that's the the tricky part. Like we want to create a safe environment. And so we're making some adjustments at the start line. I think what we did at Big Sugar, having like a restricted elite only corral at the front, like helped the women figure out where the other women were. And as I mentioned at the start of this podcast, we had places two through eight roll through together. They raced all day together out there. And I do think that having them start specifically 
around one another help them position themselves. Um, and so, yeah, so it's a tricky thing. I know I'm, I obviously am like gearing more towards the side of we need to let things roll as they do at each individual event. But I, I think that could change long-term. I look at marathoning, like where my background is and the women go off first and they, um, and a lot, a lot of that, well, actually majority of the reason for that is for media coverage specifically. So I don't know. It's, it's very dynamic. Um, we talk about it often, but I think for now we'll handle it, continue to handle on a race by race basis. We do have some events like uh, Crusher and the Tusher or Sea Otter that the women started by themselves. No, that's super interesting. I never really thought of it from like a promotion angle. Like I just was thinking from like a racing point of view, obviously like, you know, for the women's field, like having the men around to draft or whatever, that sort of thing. But I suppose also that at the end of the day, where the origins of gravel are in mass participation so you kind of if you want that separate thing it's almost like well that you can get that in like road racing or mountain bike racing or whatever so yeah that's that's actually a really interesting perspective on that yeah I hadn't heard of that before Tilda have you got anything anything to add I don't think so except that it's just every time I talk to people about gravel I find it more and more interesting and I think the fact that we're sitting here having these very nuanced conversations about how to grow an equality and gender inclusion is kind of a huge thing in itself. And the fact that the discipline is kind of growing from a standpoint of equality rather than road is just like trying to catch up with equality at the moment. So having a starting point, I think, is just a very good thing for the sport in general. Yeah, it's refreshing. And how cool is this? like gravel is only 15 years old, right? If you think about that, like really let's look at like soccer or basketball or swimming, just these sports that have existed for so long. And we're having these conversations on like, how are we preserving the sport and providing better media coverage in the women's race and supporting professional athletes. And like, that's just in 15 years. And I know that feels like a long time because we're all living through it. But when you look at like the history of sport, there are some sports that like, I I really think there's so much room to grow, but like, we should also be kudosing ourselves that we're continuing to have these conversations because, you know, a sport like, like soccer or football that's going on right now, like they're, they're still having those conversations and it's been going on for hundred plus years, you know? So um, I know cycling as a sport has been this, but this is a specific discipline. And I think it's really cool that it's leading the forefront um, in many ways, in many ways from just like a, it's super buzzy, you know, everyone like wants to learn more about it or experience it, but also um, is creating a, and fostering like a safe, inclusive space, not just for women, but people of all backgrounds. Um, And I think that's really cool. I think that's back to the ethos. It's kind of the the ethos of gravel, just inclusive. It's very much like the cool younger cousin of like stuffy old (laughs) road racing. (laughs) Um, Well, it's also, it's so interesting too, because there's like two very different key demographics to to riding gravel. And one of those is like the uh, middle-aged to older 
white male that grew up in a rural community. And that's like who helped build and I mean, really who helped build and shape gravel when it was just a small sport. And then you have this huge um, contingent of like young metropolitan, like coming from city communities that want to experience it hip culture coming in and infusing gravel and this year like standing downtown Emporia we were just looking at like what are our group rides at Unbound this year and there was like one that was advocating for transgender one that was non-binary one that was women's led one that was black led and it was just like oh my gosh like this is this is the space that we've created in this really really rural middle America community is like something of such inclusivity and you have people of all backgrounds then coming and attending so people that are coming from smaller communities or more um, conservative backgrounds are coming in and getting exposed to all of these different things going on in the world but like here's a microcosm of it like landing itself in Emporia Kansas and like every group ride had hundreds of people going on it. And like, whether or not the like deep root of the like mission of the ride resonated throughout the whole group, like that's unknown, but I do know that people felt comfortable enough in, in in attending all of those, those rides and supporting those causes. And I think that's so awesome. Just like seeing what the gravel community has been able to support. And again, it's just like a small part of the community, but if that mentality can kind of like infuse itself when all of those people go home to their hometowns and, and can share that experience, like hopefully that game of telephone works in a really positive way. Yeah. That's fantastic. That's yeah. That's really cool. Um, well, Michelle, thank you so much for your time in what I'm sure is an extremely busy schedule. Um, it's been really great to talk to you and and learn all about about you and also about the the Grand Prix and all the plans and everything. It's it's really exciting. Like you said, there's just so much potential and can't wait to see where it goes next. Thanks. I hope you guys come out to the US and uh, get a taste of the gravel. We'd love to. Road love trip to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Meet up with Betsy. We'll be there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. So how would you fancy a trip over to America for a gravel race next year? I am all in. I want to go so badly. I'm I'm fully enticed by the gravel scene. They've captured me. Yeah, you do sound really, like, excited about it. Like, the more we've talked about it, the more you're like... I feel like, yeah, it suits you. It's your scene. I don't know why. Wow. No, I think that though it's it's kind of a similar vibe to like you know downhill. It's it's mm. less regimented, more cool vibes. And I, I, you know, it's we're in the deep dark depths of the winter and the off season. I'm hating road. I'm seeing all these pictures of sunny, warm America, drinking beer at the end of the race. I'm thinking, yeah, that is a bit of me. Well, watch this space. Maybe we take Women's Cycling Weekly stateside at some point next year. Hope you enjoyed that chat with Michelle. We definitely did. Um, just before we go, we've got a quick kind of schedule update for you. Um, did mention this in the newsletter last week, but then I read it back and I realized that it was actually just one big uh, word vomit paragraph, actually. So um, in case that didn't make any sense, um, there is no main newsletter this week. Um, we're going back to kind of every other week until... Well, we're also, and then we're also taking some time off um, until Tour Down Under. So, Tilda, do you have this straight in your head? Do I? 
I have this straight in my head. Okay, so for the rest of the year, we will have a normal newsletter next week, the 16th. We'll have a Christmas newsletter on the 23rd. Um, and we will also have next week a normal podcast and a Christmas podcast in the week after that. And then we'll be off for two weeks from the normal newsletter and the podcast. So in the weeks of Friday the 30th and Friday the 6th, don't be disappointed when we don't rock up into your inbox. But we need a little break, please. The paid newsletter will continue during that. So if you really can't live without us, then consider subscribing. And then we'll be back to normal with a podcast, a newsletter and a paid newsletter in the week that begins the 9th of January. Back for the Tour Down Under and suddenly the season starts again. But we just we do need a little break after this crazy season before we start a new one. Everyone needs a holiday. I will be eating my weight in chocolate, hanging out with my dogs. You know, watching Christmas movies. Oh yeah, The Grinch. Anyway, we're not going to go into that. But yeah, just so you know what's coming up the next few weeks. Um, so yeah, we'll see you next week for the podcast and the regular newsletter. Thanks for joining us. Bye. 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 Bye.